refreshed and renewed um, in the Psalms. And uh, it's, a, it's a great place to stop. There are these wonderful hymns and songs, poems of the church and of God's people uh, that can give us refreshment and encouragement and strength for the weeks and months ahead. And um, we invite people who are preaching to choose a psalm that's particularly personal to them and something that uh, has helped them at some stage in their life. And last week we heard a wonderful sermon from Jonathan on Psalm 91, which I highly commend to you. And next week we're going to have Morag and the week after Andrew Large. And uh, I'm really excited uh, when I'm back from holiday to listen to their sermons um, uh, online and uh, on the podcast and and see how it went. Um, We're going to look at Psalm 77 today. You might want to keep it open in your Bibles. And let's just pray for a moment as we begin. Father, may we find refreshment in your word. Would you open up the scriptures to us by your spirit, that our lives may be transformed, that our eyes may be opened and fixed upon Jesus, that our hearts may be ready to hear from him, to receive from him, and to be obedient to his call. We ask this in his most precious name. Amen. I vividly remember reading this psalm, Psalm 77, at the age of 17. I don't know whether it was the first time that I had read it, but it made a difference to my life when I read it on that particular occasion. Now, when I was 17 years old, I suffered from a condition. Uh, I was um, prone to a condition that is sometimes known as adolescent angst. Uh, I suffered it throughout my teenage years, and uh, if I'm honest, truth be told, perhaps a few years into my 20s as well. I took myself and the world just a little too seriously, and I was often drawn into romantic and melancholic notions of myself in relation to the world around me. If I'm honest, looking back, I didn't have any real woes or worries at that age. What affected me was common to most teenage boys, and perhaps there are some of you who are or were once teenage boys who might relate to some of this, a degree of anxiety about how I measured up against my peers, a bit of a concern as to whether or not girls would fancy me, a general sense that I was misunderstood by the world, that my creative brilliance and my genius was not being properly appreciated. And all of this was probably cultivated by that genre of romantic teen movies and dramas, which usually had a brilliant but misunderstood young man at their center. Films like Dead Poet Society, Pump Up the Volume, Heather's, Party of Five, etc. I know there were equivalent films and dramas which had young, uh, had young women, girls, at their very heart as well. Uh, and it was the same thing, but of course I related to those ones with the young men. I certainly had a tendency to believe that intense and melancholy was somehow cool and that to stay up late at night listening to edgy music, scribbling intense romantic poetry in my journal, smoking cigarettes from my bedroom window was somehow like living out a starring role in my own American indie movie. And if there was one picture that perhaps caught that, it's this one. There was Christian Slater in Pump Up the Volume. When I was 17 years old, he was like my hero. That's how I wanted to be able to imagine myself. Now, sharing this with you now is not too embarrassing for me because I've learned to laugh at myself, or at least I've learned to laugh at my former self. But if I were to find any of my old journals and I were to read entries from them, I'm sure that I would be mortified. But one of these late nights, late nights of kind of intense, melancholy brooding, imagining myself as a Christian slater, 
perhaps around the June of 1995, I remember reading this psalm, Psalm 77, and being caught up short but what, by what I'm going to call today the perspective of providence. The perspective of providence. Now, I wouldn't have called it that back then. I wouldn't have known those words. But I think those words best describe what I learned that night reading this psalm. So what did I learn then? How did it change my life then and in the years since? That's what I want to try and unpack with you today. Let me start by saying what I mean by providence. Providence is defined in the dictionary as the foreseeing care and guidance of God or nature over the creatures of the earth. Or to put it even more directly, defined this way, God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. In other words, providence has to do with the notion that God is in control of human history and that he is carefully guiding us according to his goodness. But at this point, I've got to make something clear. That's not as simple as saying that everything that happens in the course of history is God's will. That would be absurd. As we know, we only need to read the papers. We need to look around us to know that there is all manner of evil and violence throughout history, which is not God's will. Providence doesn't mean that everything that happens in history is God's will. What it does mean is that even in the midst of troubles and trials of life, God's hand is gently guiding us and that he can be trusted. He can be trusted in the words of St. Paul to work all things together for good for those who love him. Providence says, as Joseph does in Genesis, that that which was intended for evil, God will work for good. Now, supremely, we see this in the cross of Christ, in which God, our creator, takes all of the freedom and the folly of his beloved creatures, a freedom and a folly that's expressed in the rejection and the crucifixion of Jesus. And and he takes all of that and he makes it the very instrument of victory over the powers of sin and death. He takes the very worst thing that humankind, that his human creation could do uh, to, to, to reject God himself in rejecting Jesus. And, and that moment of kind of rejection, of folly that's rooted in human freedom and rooted in evil and in sin, he takes it and he redemptively transforms it so that it can become the very instrument of the victory over the powers of sin and death. So providence is both about the ongoing care of God for his creation, but it's also about how God specially intervenes to direct the course of humanity made in his image. It's about how he, he, he steps in to rescue us from the wreckage to take the things which are broken and to transform them and heal them, to take the detritus and the mess of our lives and to remold them and refashion them according to his purpose and his plans. So how does all of this work in Psalm 77? Well, Psalm 77 directs us to think about this idea of providence, and it does so by changing our perspective. I love uh, these images uh, that help us to think a bit about perspective, to think about what we are seeing, how we are looking. Uh, I always sort of remember these, and I've never set up one of these photos myself, but I love this idea of kind of camera trickery to help us think twice about what we're looking at, how we are seeing the world around us, how we are seeing things. Psalm 77 changes our perspective. It gives us a new perspective on our lives. It's a psalm that's attributed to somebody called Asaph, Now, we're not entirely clear whether this is an individual or whether it refers to a group, the Asaphites or the school of Asaph. Uh, They were the temple singers and musicians. 
The nature, though, of the intense and personal language suggests that this psalm probably was composed by a particular individual, but was seized upon and used to express a common human experience, just in the same way that sometimes a pop song uh, will be written by an individual about their own experience, but it will be used by all of us to express something that is common to us all. So in a way, Psalm 77 seems to have originated from within the worship group, the worship team, but been picked up and used by the people of God, Israel, and then by the church to express something with which we are all familiar. Now, the writer of the psalm begins a bit of a mess. Look at the beginning, verse One, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. I think the writer was a bit of a nighttime melancholic, calling out to God for comfort. In fact, verse 2 and verse 6 both mention nighttime directly. Verse 2, at night I stretched out untiring hands. Or verse 6, I remembered my songs in the night. And verse 4 also refers to the night, although indirectly this time. It says, you kept my eyes from closing. So the very time when your eyes are supposed to close, when you go to sleep, the night, God kept the psalmist's eyes from closing as he kind of mulled over all the things which were troubling him. Now, I think that I related to the writer of this psalm in my adolescent angst phase. So those nights that I sat up imagining myself as Christian Slater, being all intense and melancholy, I I thought I could... uh, I could relate to the psalmist and his agony and all the things that he was going on. I listened to edgy and melancholy songs in the night, verse 6, either on my headphones or on my hi-fi. And as I scribbled in my journal, my heart mused and my spirit inquired. Again, verse 6. Now, it's possible that the psalmist is expressing the pain and agony of some serious misfortune rather than just being a bit brooding and intense as I was. But even if the disease was different, the remedy is the same. The remedy is a changed perspective, a new perspective based on God's providence, a new way of looking at his own situation and the world around him. And the critical turning point in the psalm is verse 10. Uh, Look at it, if you will. It says, um, Then I thought, to this I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember your miracles. I'll meditate on your works. I'll consider your mighty deeds. Verse 10, 11, and 12. The psalmist decides to focus on what God has done in history. Our translation here says that he will remember God's deeds and miracles, meditate on his works, and consider God's deeds. Actually, other translations talk about calling to mind or recollecting, recalling. Then talks about remembering, meditating, and then finally musing, or in some early versions, exercising. The Reformation priest and theologian Martin Luther took up this fourfold scheme, and he claimed that our changed perspective involved these four progressive stages. So what's the first thing that happens when we, when we change our perspective? A recollection of what God has done in our lives. I will recollect the deeds of the Lord. I will recall them. I will call them to mind. This is a work of our our mind to remember the things that God has done in our own lives, to remember the things that God has done in our family, in our church, in our homes, to call back into uh, our minds those occasions in history when we knew that God was with us, God had helped us, rescued us, provided for us. To think back to those times, yes, 
I remember that God was with me. I remember that God was faithful. I remember God helped me in this situation or that situation to recall the events and the incidences that relate to God's provision for us. But Martin Luther doesn't stop there. He says we need to recollect, we need to do this work of the mind and recollection, but then we need to do something which is deeper, more integrated. We need to remember or remember. And this is sort of a work of the emotion, remembering God's providential care in our lives. And this is more than mere recollection, where we're just calling things to mind. It's not just an exercise of our minds. It's rather about an emotional reintegration in our whole selves, a confidence in our spirit, in our being, in our, in our, in our very selves. It's remembering as the opposite of dismembering. If dismembering tears ourselves apart, remembering puts ourselves back together, integrated, emotion, mind, thoughts, feelings. It's about putting us back together again. It's about making us whole. It's similar, in fact, in, to the way in which Christ is remembered every time we celebrate Holy Communion. Because the reconciling work that he has achieved in reality is renewed in his church as we gather at peace with one another and to his table. So there's this work of the mind, calling God's deeds to mind, and then this work of remembering and sort of putting ourselves back together and knowing in our emotions, in our feelings, in our hearts that God is with us and God has been with us. Third, it's a work of meditation, and meditation is about where we fix our gaze. Martin Luther said that meditation is related to desire and to delight. So meditation is a work of delight. He said this, one does not meditate on the law of the Lord unless his delight was first fixed in it. For what we want and love, on that we reflect inwardly and diligently. But what we hate or despise, we pass over lightly and do not desire deeply, diligently, or for long. Therefore, let delight be first sent into the heart as the root, and then meditation will come of its own accord. Martin Luther is saying that meditating is about fixing our gaze upon Christ, and we only fix our gaze on Christ when we delight in him, when we desire him. The things that we love, we, we, pay, we pay attention to. We spend mind medita time meditating on. We fix our gaze on. One of the reasons why we spend so much time here at St. John's spending, uh, singing songs of praise and worship is it enables us to fix our gaze on Jesus, to delight in him, to, uh, to, to sort of transform our, our, our bodies so that we desire Jesus afresh and anew. And uh, when, we have, when we've cultivated a desire and a delight in God, it leads us to meditate and fix our gaze on Jesus. So there's a work of the mind, the recollection. Then there's a work of remembering and reintegrating, putting us back together, joining up our emotions and our thoughts. And then there's a work of meditating, um, fixing our gaze upon Christ because we have cultivated a desire and a delight on him. And then fourth, we put all this to work by musing, or in that other translation, exercising exercising our confidence in God's providence. So what do we mean by that? The translation with which Luther was working was clear that musing was not simply kind of contemplation. It was about active engagement with what was going on. It was about being employed to something, exercising something. Luther believed that this whole process was not confined to the world of the imagination or the mind only, but somehow must be expressed in active engagement. He believed that remembering the works of God must necessarily entail activity in worship and prayer. It couldn't be passive. So when we muse, when we exercise uh, this new perspective in providence, it, it compels us into worship and to prayer, to gather together. 
Luther wrote this, the intellect remembers when it keeps busy meditating on these things. The will remembers when it keeps on loving and praying. The hand remembers when it is constantly active. The things that we do day in, day out, the cooking, the playing an instrument skillfully, the things that we employ our hands for, they learn, they, they develop muscle memory. They start to take things on as habit. And that's part of this process of changing our perspective. So for Luther, this change perspective change perspective that begins in verse 10 is expressed in recollection, in emotional remembering, in the delight of meditation and fixing our gaze on Christ, and finally, the musing and the exercising of all of this in prayer, worship, and loving service of others. But that's all very well, but why should we do this? What confidence can we have that God may be trusted as we seek this new perspective of providence? What difference will it make? Well, the psalm has an answer for that. The answer that the psalm gives is that we can trust God because of God's character and because of his deeds. Now, firstly, and most obviously, the psalmist appeals to God's deeds. He refers to the miracles performed by God. Verse 11, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. He talks about how the descendants of Jacob and Joseph were saved. Verse 15, he's rooting this in things that happened in history, events that happened a long time ago. He brings to mind the work of the Exodus, in which the Red Sea, as with verse 16, writhed and convulsed and parted that the people of Israel may walk through from danger to safety. Verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. You led your people like a flock, verse 20. Although the psalmist has not witnessed these events personally, because they were long ago, still the psalmist is content with the historicity of the saving work so as to trust in God's power. So the psalmist says, I can have confidence that I'm going to get this new perspective because of God's providence, because I can look to what God has done. Secondly, and perhaps less directly, he also appeals to God's character. So in verses 7, 8, and 9, the psalmist describes God's character as being one who, verse 7, shows favor. Verse 8, has unfailing love, makes promises. Verse 9, who is merciful, who is compassionate. Now in each case, God's character is described in the form of a negative statement in a question, but that still presupposes and presents to us what the psalmist perceives to be God's true nature and character. So when he says, has his unfailing love vanished forever, what he means is, God is the one of unfailing love. Has it gone? Has God forgotten to be merciful? What he means is, God is merciful. That's his character. Has he forgotten? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is no. I've called to mind his deeds. I know what he has done. Actually, this approach of thinking about events and history, thinking about character, temperament, personality, is one which most of us are familiar with because we commonly base our confidence and our trust in relationships upon track record and personal knowledge. If I'm ordering some products from the internet, I have no knowledge of the salesperson who sat at the other end of the computer or the person who wrote the algorithm that is making these menu items come up. But I probably know which companies have been reliable in the past. I know which ones deliver when they say they will deliver. And I might even read the reviews to get a sense of a track record. How have, how's this company, how's this product been with other people? What's the track record? What are the events of history? 
and I base my judgment upon that. If I'm wondering whether my parents will be able to support Caleb emotionally in a year's time when he's making the transition to secondary school, I, I don't have a track record to go on. They've never done it before. That's something for the future. But I do know their character. I know what they're like, and so I can be confident that they will be equipped and able to do so. Sometimes these two things combine. If I am wondering whether this Tuesday evening, Sarah uh, will have packed and prepared all of the things that we need for holiday, ready for me to load into the car as we uh, set off, I have got both track record and knowledge of Sarah's character. Uh, I know that in previous years, we've had everything ready for me to pack into the car and load when we set off a holiday, and I know that Sarah is a prepared and diligent person who will make sure that everything is put together. And we combine, our, we, we make our judgments on these things, don't we? We know somebody's track record, we know what they're like, and we know their personality. Our confidence in God, our faith, our trust in him, is based on what we know of God's character and also what we know of what God has done in history, his track record, if you like. Let me try and wrap this all up. One biblical commentator on this psalm said this, most Christians realize that at least a part of their faith has to do with historical events. The death and resurrection of Christ are recognized as particularly important. But such a connection between faith and history, however, did not originate with primitive Christianity, early Christianity. Its roots go much deeper into the past. The psalmist reveals that Israelites gain strength and comfort by planting their faith firmly in the God who worked in history. Reading this psalm, Psalm 77, can change us, just as it did for me uh, 22 years ago, reading it. Uh, at the age of 17. It can give us a new perspective. A member of our church emailed me a couple of weeks ago with a wonderful quote from Tom Wright, which said this, the Psalms themselves indicate that the human beings who sing them are actually being changed by doing so. Their very innermost selves, which include their physical selves, are being transformed. Reading these Psalms can help us gain this new perspective, the perspective of providence. They can change us. They can change our perspective. They can help us to call to mind the deeds of God in history. They can help us renew our trust and confidence in him because of his deeds, because of his character. And when we sing our worship songs, songs based on the same language of the Psalms, when we pray the Psalms together, they change us. Just the very act of reading them, meditating on them, singing them, changes us, transforms us. And this transforms self, this new perspective the perspective of providence can help us to lift up our heads from the woes and the worries that surround us. Whether that's adolescent angst or whether it is something else, they can help us focus with gratitude and confidence upon God's love and care. Now this care that God has for us is expressed as the psalm points us forwards from its own time to the time when God will most dramatically demonstrate his providential love and care for us. The psalmist builds the whole of, uh, of his appeal to God's providential goodness upon the story of the Exodus. He mentions Moses and Aaron in verse 20. He talks about the path leading through the sea in verse 19 and in verse 16. It makes it all very clear. And for us reading it, we can reflect on something else because just as God, through Moses, led his people from slavery in Egypt into freedom in the promised land. So too, when we read this psalm, we look back on the great exodus. The great exodus in which God, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has led us from slavery to sin and death 
into the freedom of the promise of new creation. So when your soul is in distress, when you cry out to God in the watches of the night, appeal to this, the character and the deeds of the God who reveals himself to humanity in Jesus. Jesus, the one who gives himself in sacrificial love for the world. The one who leads us from slavery into freedom. From death into life. Shall we stand and pray? John is going to lead us in a song in just a moment, but just in the quiet and the stillness beforehand, let's let's follow this process that Luther uh, advocated for us. Let's call to mind what God has done in our lives. Recollect in your mind those times when you knew the nearness of God, when you knew his work in your life. Recollect his saving work through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his care over the church, his care through our families, through history. And let's remember, let's reintegrate our lives so that our, our hearts may be glad. It's not just a cold and intellectual exercise, this is a work of our emotion, a work of our will to remember God's goodness. And let's meditate on the goodness of God as we fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. And in worship and in prayer. Let's commit ourselves to that ongoing pattern of that ongoing pattern of placing our faith and our confidence in God. Because of his goodness, because of his character, because of what he has done. So come Holy Spirit, renew hope in our hearts. Pour out your love into our lives. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to gain a new perspective on our lives and on this world. Because of what you have done, because of who you are. Come Holy Spirit. We worship you.